If you could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I think it's page 1164. Uh, and then in a moment we're going to read the entire chapter together. But just before we do that, I want to make a few introductory comments. Uh, if, you were to, if you were to sit down and read this entire letter, that's all 257 verses uh, of 2 Corinthians. If you were to sit down and read all 257 verses in one go, you would probably pick up a definite shift in tone whenever you reach the 10th chapter. And it kind of continues with that tone right through to the final chapter of the letter, which is chapter 13. Some have described this shift as announced, unexpected, pronounced, and sustained. Because all of a sudden it seems, as, as you read through Paul's letter, this, this his second letter to the Corinthian church and believers, that his mood changes. And the writing actually begins to come across as, as quite severe in places. One commentator talks about the savage reproaches and the sarcastic self-vindication of chapters 10 to 13. It's very, very different from the first nine chapters. Others, as they have, have looked at this letter and kind of reflected on it and, and, and studied it in a bit more detail and trying to be a little more generous, characterize these chapters as strong but pastoral. And the key thing to remember as you come to this letter is that Paul, who is a Christian leader, he's a spiritual shepherd, he was writing into a tough situation. He was writing into an environment where relatively new believers were making mistakes, where new Christians were in real danger of losing their way. Also, he found himself up against a whole bunch of opponents. He recalls them false teachers, people who questioned his message, questioned his ministry, questioned his gifting, and they made life really, really difficult for Paul and difficult for that local church. And so Paul, if you like, is writing to both sheep and wolves. And in these final chapters, you, you do sense that he's kind of up in the ante a bit. And he's not holding back as he addresses some of his opponents and, and some of their accusations. Now, back in, in week one of this series, which we started in October, I did make the point that 2 Corinthians is widely recognized as the most difficult to understand of all of Paul's letters. It contains more than its fair share of sort of meaty material and deeply theological language. And chapter 10 is no exception. And therefore, I am not going to be able to or attempt to explain every comment, every phrase, every expression that we come across in these 18 verses. But I do want to grab certain lines and particular ideas that come across. And, and I want to really paint a few broad brush strokes that hopefully, hopefully, will, will help and inspire and encourage us in Christian service. So far during this series, if you've been following it, we have looked at our calling to be conduits of comfort, and that was based on, on some reflections in chapter 1. Then we've looked at our calling to be ministers of reconciliation from chapter 5. And then last week, we looked at our calling as Christians to be models of generosity, and that was from chapter 8. So tonight, I haven't been able to come up with a phrase yet that kind of fits or works. So uh, as we kind of go along, if, if you can think of a phrase, that would be great. And then that will make four points 
Uh, and if they can all be similar to that type of phrase, okay, that would be, that would be brilliant. Okay, so let's, uh, let's stand together for the public reading of God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and as I say, I'm going to take the time to read all 18 verses. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are looking only on the surface of things or you're judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned us to, a field that reaches even to you. We are not going too far in our boasting. We would be the e the case if we had not come to you, for we did not get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about the work already done in another man's territory, but let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Grab a seat. There's there's just so much in there. Uh, But in terms of a kind of overarching theme, or one general motif, if you like, that comes across in these verses, uh, and I'm going to kind of approach this slightly differently tonight, but I do want to suggest that the issue of what other people think of us is embedded in this chapter. Okay, The issue of what other people think of us. In the very first verse, have a look at it, you'll notice that Paul puts a couple of the words in, or certainly the, the translators have, in, in it, quote marks, timid and bold. And what many people think is that, that Paul here is giving the impression that he's referring to or quoting specific things that have been said about him. Some people have said he's timid. Some people have said he's bold. And he's heard these terms, in a sense, through the grapevine. And so he's referring to them. And then in verse 7, and I tried to emphasize it, and depending on your translation, it it kind of reads that uh, right from the beginning of time, people have judged by appearances. 
It's not just a 21st century phenomenon. And then finally, in, in verse 10, Paul quotes at length something rather derogatory that's been said about him. His letters are witty. They're forceful. But in person, he's unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. Now, that's pretty harsh and potentially damaging. It's not great for your self-esteem, especially whenever preaching and speaking is part and parcel of what you do. So how does Paul deal with this? Well, before we look at that, let me ask you this question. How do you deal with it? How do you process and handle the opinions of others? Because let's be honest, for most of us, what other people think about us really matters. Now, there are, there are the odd exceptions. Some people don't care what others think of them. But they're few and far between. I have to I also admit, most people that I meet, self-included, do care about what other people think. Do care about the opinions of others. And the problem with this is that other people's opinions of you or what they say about you or how they talk about you can begin to define you. You can actually allow what other people say to shape your identity. Henri Nguyen, who is one of my favorite writers, he puts it like this. Who am I? I'm the one who is liked, praised, admired, disliked, hated, and despised. In other words, I am what people think of me. And whenever we become vulnerable to the opinions of others, life becomes a bit of an emotional roller coaster. John Ortberg, in, in his little study guide on this chapter, writes this. See, see if it resonates with anyone. A serious addiction problem affects many people, rich and poor, young and old, of every race and creed. This particular addiction has nothing to do with chemical dependency or substance abuse. To date, there are no 12-step groups or treatment centers to help people fight it. Many who are afflicted with this illness do not, or sickness do not even know it. It is called approval addiction. Living in bondage to what other people think. If your identity is wrapped up in whether you are perceived as successful, likable, or acceptable, you are predisposed to being an approval addict. When you become an approval addict, no matter how much of this drug you get, you can never get enough. Just like all other junkies, you need more and more approval. I'm going to show you uh, a list of self-analysis kind of analysis questions. Six of them, and I want to invite you to kind of put a mental tick beside any that you agree with, okay? Ready for this now? So I'm just asking you to put a mental tick beside any you agree with. I'm easily hurt by things other people say about me. I often compare myself to other people, even people I don't know very well. I'm very competitive and have an unexplainable need to beat other people and be number one. I try to impress others by subtly boasting about myself. 
I avoid confronting people because I'm afraid they won't like me if I do. I find myself often wondering, what do other people think of me? Okay, now how many did you tick? Turn around and tip. No, I'm only joking. The truth is that, that most of us, or almost every human being on planet Earth, has moments whenever this virus of the soul attacks. We all suffer. I want to suggest, from some degree or other of approval addiction. Here's an interesting question. Why do you think approval addiction is so common and prevalent today? Okay, Why? Why? Does anybody want to give me an answer? Or a suggestion? Okay. If I'm broken... Like many families broken down. Yeah. Any other reasons? Okay. We live in a image saturated culture. Okay. Anything else? We want to be important. Thanks, John. Anything else? Yeah. We're identity is placed <laughs> yes you can Paul yep you were thinking the same thing Dorothy right is it any more prevalent today than it has ever been good question <laughs> any other reasons a need for acceptance. Thanks, Joe. I'm, uh, I'm not for a moment suggesting that the desire to be approved is a really bad thing, by the way. Because on so many levels it's not, and I'm not about to suggest that we should simply and always dismiss what other people think of us and not give us stuff, or not care, to put it rather more politely. Surely we don't want to go through life having no regard for what anybody else thinks of us. That's certainly not what I'm suggesting. But here's the tension. When we are driven, when we are motivated by what other people think of us and by their approval, that's when we end up getting into all sorts of problems. Because that begins to consume us we end up living to other people's agendas and expectations. We ride that emotional roller coaster. We run out of gas. And our self-esteem becomes an incredibly fragile commodity. Now, one of the, the key aspects of this relates to the way we actually process the opinions of others. And this is the bit I find really interesting about this issue. David Burns, writing on the subject, says... It's actually not other people's approval that makes us feel good, but our belief that there is validity to what they say. I don't know if does that, I hope that makes sense. In other words, it's not just what people say that's the issue. It's not just what people think of us that creates the problem. The problem is whenever we kind of simply agree and just accept that what they've said is true. It's not just what they say. It's whether we give it validity. No one's approval or disapproval of us 
can really affect us unless we give it credibility and status. And therefore, we must not allow, and this is easier said than done, but we must not allow the opinions of others the power to dominate and dictate our lives. And yet so many people today do. So how do we uh, deal with this addiction? How do we navigate our way through the inevitable opinions of others? Because everybody has an opinion of other people. Lots of you right now have got an opinion of me and where I'm going with this and thinking, hang on a wee minute. What's this got to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 10? So how do we navigate our way through this? What is Paul's perspective? How did he deal with it? Because he was clearly dealing with this when he was saying you judge people by appearances. He said that when you meet him in person, he's unimpressive. He's a lousy speaker. He's timid. He's bold. All these comments people had about him. Well, look at the final verse of the chapter. Because what we discover, and this is fundamental here, is that Paul's driving force was God's approval. It was God's opinion and view that mattered the most. Look at this. It was about being commended by God that Paul cared about. See, Paul was comfortable, it seems, in his own skin. He wasn't wound up and overly concerned about what other people thought of him. The real question that Paul seemed to ask constantly was this. Will this please God? Whose approval am I actually seeking? And this is, in fact, and I find this really interesting as I've looked into this a little bit more, but this was a core theme in Paul's life. I want to show you the opening, or one of the opening verses of, of his letter to, to a different uh, group of Christians. Galatians 1.10, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. You see, Paul made it his mission and his purpose in life to be a God-pleaser not a people pleaser. And if you remember nothing about this evening that I say, let me encourage you just to take that thought, that idea, that phrase away. And ask yourself this question. Am I a God pleaser or a people pleaser? Whose approval matters most, really? Whose approval matters most? For Paul, the answer was simple. And so he wasn't hung up about whether people said you're timid or you're bold. Because Paul's focus and driving passion was God's approval, he could be both gentle and forceful depending on his situation because he walked in freedom. People's opinion didn't dictate God's did. And even when people had a cheap shot at him, even when they did say he's unimpressive in person, he's a lousy speaker, he didn't let that crush him. He didn't let that dominate his thinking. He didn't let that dictate his view of himself because for Paul, it wasn't about impressing others. It wasn't about being the best communicator in the world. Why? Because Paul was a God pleaser, not a people pleaser. And so Paul could cope with the fact that people judged him by his appearance. It's fine. And he challenged them in that in verse 7. But their marks out of 10, or their comments based on his externals, weren't going to determine his identity or plunge him into a downward spiral of self-loathing. 
or force him to pursue an extreme makeover. Paul was a God pleaser. And I'm convinced Paul knew that although everybody else looks in the outward appearance, he knew God looked at the heart. Paul knew the Old Testament. He knew the story of David being selected. He knew that quote from Samuel. Man looks in the outward appearance. God looks in the heart. And in addition, Paul's identity was wrapped up and secure in the fact that he belonged to Jesus. Look at verse 7. Where Paul talks about this whole idea of belonging to Christ. Just as much as anybody else. And so Paul knew he was loved by God, that he belonged to Jesus. And those are two realities that forged his identity and left him free from unhealthy approval addiction. And for those of us who are Christians, and yet we sometimes find ourselves preoccupied by the opinions of others, far too concerned about our external appearance, far too worried about the perceptions of those around us, let me suggest or prescribe a visit to rehab where that unhealthy addiction can be addressed by recovering the reality that you are loved by God and you belong to Christ. You're loved by God and you belong to Christ. And nothing can separate you from that love, as Paul would write again to another group of Christians. And you are secure in Christ, as Paul again would stress to another group of Christians. And essential to this recovery program is the importance of listening to the right voices, giving the right voices validity and credibility and status. And the core voice that we need to hear is obviously God's. And how do we hear God's voice affirming us today? Speaking into our lives, clarifying our identity, telling us we are loved, telling us who we are in Christ. How do we hear that? Through a consistent and regular engagement with his word. That's how you hear the right voices speaking into your heart and into your mind. And also having this ability to listen to the spirit of God, who the Bible says testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. As Adam said earlier, we are surrounded and bombarded by so many alternative voices like the media. Our peers, advertisers, critics, the enemy. Whispering. You're not good enough. You don't matter. You don't count. You really mess up all the time. You're a failure. There's lots of voices constantly speaking to us. The sinful self. But over, above, and beyond all other voices, we need to hear God's. And that's why for me, a constant reading of this is essential. And the reason we need to constantly tune into God's voice is because it clarifies and affirms what is true and what is right about us rather than what other people think about us. God's word, God's truth realigns our thinking and perspective. And this is something I've I've, I've touched on before, but so often whenever we listen to other voices, less helpful voices, 
we do let them begin to dictate who we are and our identity. And so if someone says we're no good, we begin to think we're no good, and that can have a real negative impact on our behaviors because we then start to behave like we're no good. It's so important that we remind ourselves how God sees us so that we can arrest and challenge faulty thinking. In this text in verse 5, Paul talks about taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. Those are, I know that's a familiar phrase in this chapter and it's one we, we, we do know. And you can come at it from a number of different angles, but I want to suggest that whenever you begin to listen to some less than helpful voices, and you're thinking about who you are in Christ is damaged, then you need to take those thoughts captive. You need to submit them to God and you need to listen to what he says about you. Take every thought captive. Make it obedient to Christ. Let me add another dimension to this. And Paul touches on this in verse 12, where he writes, we do not compare or we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. And I want to—I kind of do want to rip this one out of context a little and, and sound a warning. And it's this, beware of comparisons. Do you know, comparing ourselves to others is a national pastime. I'm not saying you shouldn't admire others. I'm not saying you shouldn't look up to others or learn from others. But be careful that you're not constantly comparing yourself to those around you further afield. Because what often happens almost by default whenever we compare ourselves to others is either one of two things. You either feel superior or inferior. And I'm never sure which is worse. An inferiority or a superiority complex. One leads to pride, which is never attractive or conducive to Christian discipleship. The other, whenever you feel inferior... Well, that leads to all sorts of problems. From feeling rubbish about yourself to pouring all your energy and all your passion into being better than the next person. And again, neither are helpful. Beware of comparisons. Paul says, listen, we don't compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. Why? Because Paul's secure in who he is in Christ. And so my hope and prayer for us as a community, is that we will be a community of God-pleasers. A community of people who are committed to God's approval, who really do care about being commended by God for how we live our lives, rather than having other people's opinions of us dictate. And then, and whenever you get this to this place, I believe then you can boast. Kind of puff your chest out and boast. But not in yourself. But boast in the Lord, as Paul writes in verse 17. And here Paul is definitely picking up on something that God said via the prophet Jeremiah, where he writes, let those who boast, boast about this, that they understand and know me. And so Paul picks this line up in 2 Corinthians 10, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. To boast in the Lord means to know God and to communicate the fact that you know God with confidence. Don't be ashamed to say, I know God. 
Paul said, you understand, or that this verse in Jeremiah, you understand God. Yes, there's mystery. Yes, there's so much more to discover. But we can boast in the fact we know God, we understand God. And that's who determines our identity and who we are. Now, having gone through all of that, somebody might be asking, hang on a minute, David, what has this got to do with service? Like the title for this series, Dying to Serve, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the connection is. Well, if we suffer from approval addiction, if you get hung up on what other people think of you, if you find yourself constantly comparing yourself to those around you, here's what happens. You become consumed by self. And you lose sight of your calling and your commitment to serve and please God and love and serve others. And it's so important that we are God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. Because whenever we're God-pleasers, then it'll just naturally flow that we'll serve others rather than being consumed by self. So, week one, conduits of comfort. Week two, ministers of reconciliation. Week three, models of generosity. Week four, if you can come up with a decent phrase, let me know based on what I've just shared.